University of California Television presents this podcast of Angela Davis, How Does Change Happen?, recorded on October 10, 2006. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. If I had time, I would talk at length about how my own world has vastly transformed since I was a child growing up in what was at that time the most segregated city in the South, Birmingham, Alabama. So maybe I'll give you an abbreviated version. Or perhaps I'll tell you that whenever I return home, I am struck by the fact that I still remain pretty much a stranger to the geography of the city. Because when I lived there, black people were confined by the prevalent apartheid system to just a very few neighborhoods. And as a matter of fact, I remember people always talking about over the mountain. Uh, is, if any, is, it, is there anybody from Birmingham in the house? Okay, so you know what I mean, right? <laughs> but the only black people who ever went over the mountain were domestic workers. And so, things have changed. When I go shopping, if I'm in Birmingham, I am always struck by the invasive memories of the double restrooms and the double water fountains with white and colored marking uh, the ones that were deemed appropriate, racially appropriate. And so that segregation is no longer with us. I'm not saying that racism has been abolished. I'm saying that that legal form of segregation uh, has been disestablished. And it wasn't disestablished because presidents or legislators or judges one day had epiphanies about the injustices and immoralities of racial segregation. It was disestablished because ordinary people, ordinary people became collectively aware of themselves as potential agents of social change, as holding within their collective hands the power to create a new world. And it was disestablished, segregation was disestablished because ordinary people learned how to adopt a critical stance in the way they perceived their relationship to reality. Social realities that might have appeared impenetrable, inalterable, unchangeable, came to be viewed as malleable and transformable. And people learned how to imagine what it might mean to live in a world that was not so exclusively governed by the principle of white supremacy. And this collective consciousness emerged within the context of social struggles and was transmitted in many ways. If I were going to tell my own personal story, I would probably mention 
Um, one of my very earliest memories, uh, uh, what my mother used to tell me when I would uh, cry when I learned that I couldn't go here or there, that I couldn't go to the amusement park because black people were barred from the amusement park. It was whites only, or, or couldn't go through this door, or, or, or couldn't go into this library. It had to go into the, the, the black library. But I learned how, to, how not to cry when my mother explained to me, and perhaps I was about three years old, and I don't know, maybe three or four. My mother explained racism and segregation to me. And what she said, and I'll never forget this, was that she said, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This might be the way they are now, but they are not supposed to be this way. And she said they will not always be this way. And I can remember as a child her telling me that one day I would probably look back and realize how um, enormously things had changed. Now, I relate this bit of personal history because it helps me to understand how important it is to transmit certain habits of perception, certain habits of imagination. Just as it was once possible and important for people to imagine a world without slavery, a world beyond slavery, just as it was important for me personally to learn how, as a child, to imagine a world without racial segregation, and then later to imagine a world in which women were not assumed to be inferior to men, it is now important to imagine a world without xenophobia and the fenced-in borders that are designed to make us think about the people of the South as the enemy. It is important now to imagine a world in which binary conceptions of gender no longer govern modes of segregation and association, and one in which violence is eradicated from state practices as well as from our intimate lives, regardless of how we position our sexuality. It's really important to um, work with your imagination, to use your imagination, to think beyond the moment. But it's not enough simply to imagine a different future. We can walk around with these ideal words in our heads while everything crumbles around us. And so I would say that critical habits involve collective intervention as well. If we take the critical impulse seriously, it involves a dual commitment. I would say, first of all, a commitment to use knowledge in a transformative way. 
And I assume that many of you here are students, am I right? Okay, okay. Well, let's, let's see. Where are the students in the house? Okay, okay. And where are the... Well, I, I suppose I could talk about faculty and staff, but I'm going to also talk about community people. Okay, so where are you from? Sacramento. You know, I never knew that UC Davis was so diverse. And when I walked out and saw the audience, I thought, wow, UC Davis is ahead of all the other campuses in the UC system. (laughs) But I actually know what's going on. And I know that some of you are are planning a major demonstration soon around the issue of the underrepresentation of students of color in the University of California. Okay. And of course, we assume that um, the knowledge that matters comes from places like this, uh, where people who are here, both faculty and, and students, engage in the full-time uh, pursuit of knowledge, right? We're supposed to be the intelligentsia, right? But I would like us to think about, a no- about knowledge in a much broader way. This is one site for the production of knowledge, but knowledge gets produced in other sites as well. And especially for students who, who come from backgrounds where they know what uh, poverty means, what racism means, it's, it's, it's extremely important not to discount the learning that happens in our communities, the learning that happens on the job, the learning that happens in the course of organizing trade unions. So when I say knowledge, I'm not talking about the specialized knowledge. I'm not only talking about that specialized knowledge. I'm talking about knowledge in a broader sense. And so as I was saying, the critical impulse which uh, I want to suggest we need to develop involves a commitment to use knowledge in a transformative way. To use knowledge as a um, way of helping us to remake the world, to remake the world so that it is better for all of its inhabitants. And I'm not only talking about human beings. This critical impulse means that we have to absolutely refuse to attribute any kind of permanency to that which is, simply because it is. There's another aspect of what we might call a critical posture towards the world. And... In my opinion, this is where feminism comes in. And I'll talk about feminism uh, a little later, but I want us to think about feminism much more broadly 
than we usually do. Uh, I want to think about feminism as encouraging us to adopt critical habits toward the tools we use. And I'm talking about, when I say tools, I'm talking about the conceptual tools. That means our concepts, our vocabularies. And not only in the academy, but also among, in organizing practices. Uh, Because it's, you know, it, it, it occurs to me that uh, you know, we have all of these different languages, and we assume that uh, some are more important than others. We have all of these different vocabularies, and we don't all we don't share the meanings of these uh, words. Uh, so you know, I can say struggle, and I know that uh, there are some people who will understand exactly what I mean when I say struggle. There are other people struggle. You know, what is that? Uh, now, before I move on to talk about some of the aspects of our contemporary world that desperately need changing, I want to make two important points. And one has to do with the tendency to erase the contributions of those who have perhaps done the most to bring about progressive change. And the second point has to do with the difference between the change we want, the change we struggle for on the one hand, and the change we actually achieve, the changing change that we actually achieve. Now, First of all, we're, we're gathered here under the auspices of the Women's Resources and Research Center. Let's give them a hand. And because they have brought us together in this, um, in this temporary community uh, that we constitute, and there are quite a few people here, I'm totally impressed. I'm impressed with the, the, the Women's Resource Center. I'm impressed with UC Davis. I'm impressed with the Sacramento community. Uh, we should figure out later on, before we break up, how to use this. You know, so I, I think what I'm going to do at the end is ask people who are organizationally affiliated uh, and who are involved in, 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 in some of the, the campaigns for radical change, whether it be abolition of the prison system, you know, whether it be against violence against women, to come up to the front. And, you know, we'll be sort of like uh, church, right? You know, if you feel so inspired to offer, you don't have to offer any money, you know, but you can offer uh, your bodies and your minds and your time, So remind me, we have to do that before we break up this evening. Um, So as I was saying, often those who contribute most powerfully to movements for radical social change are erased in the histories that are transmitted from generation to generation. And I like to use the civil rights movement uh, as an example. 
because it's historical for me. Even I, I, I was quite uh, I, I was quite young, and I so I have an experience of it. But I have to think about it as uh, um, history as well, and also because everybody in this country knows who Reverend Martin Luther King is. Right? Everybody knows. Can you? Think of any person in the United States of America who has not heard the name Martin Luther King. I mean, even in places like Arizona, where you know, <laughs> you know they really resisted the birthday, uh, 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 the observance of the birthday. And I think this is—I think this is great. This is a change that happened, but it may not have been entirely the change that we wanted because we don't really, we, we, we aren't really uh, informed about the conditions under which that particular leadership developed. And we assume that because there was someone called Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he appeared on the scene in Montgomery. He was the Messiah. And, and, and this whole movement developed. I mean, that's what I call the Messiah complex in terms of uh, our notions of leadership, right? Um, and it seems to me that the greatness of Dr. King resided precisely in his capacity to learn his leadership abilities, to acquire his leadership abilities from the people who had organized that movement, to listen to them. And as a matter of fact, you know, most people don't even know that, uh, that it was a group of black women who organized the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, most people haven't heard of the name Joanne Robinson, even though she wrote a book called The Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. <laughs> because that messes with the paradigm, right? You're supposed to think that it's these great heroic male leaders who are the motors of history. And how could you possibly measure up to someone like that? And what you don't realize is that the real work happened uh, long before Dr. King ever thought of associating himself with those struggles. As a matter of fact, do you know why he ended up being the spokesperson? Because all the black ministers in Montgomery had been involved in you know, all of these um, confusing debates and there were contradictions and, and you couldn't ask this one because the, you know how ministers, uh, some of you know how ministers, right? <laughs> Those of you from Sacramento. 
And so the idea was to choose this young man who had just arrived in town and who hadn't had an opportunity to get embroiled in all of the debates and who really didn't know very much anyway, uh, which isn't to say young people don't know very much. Uh, they do. They know a great deal. But he was considered to be uh, uh, the easiest choice. And so basically the women selected Dr. King as the spokesperson for the work that they were doing. Now this isn't the history that we, we learn, is it? I mean, we don't, we, we don't know about um, Joanne Robinson, uh, who, uh, who taught at uh, Alabama State University and was the chair of the Alabama uh, uh, political, Women's Political Association, uh, how she and the members of her organization were trying to start a boycott. They had planned that. And they had tried on several occasions. And then finally, when Rosa Parks got arrested, and Rosa Parks was an organizer. She wasn't a tired woman. You know? She wasn't the, 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 the individual you always see uh, uh, portrayed, especially in the visual portrayals of her. You know, sort of the one black woman who manages to make it to the ranks of the heroic historical figures alone. Uh, she was an organizer. She was a trained organizer. And when she was arrested, Joanne Robinson um, got, a, got a couple of her students. They stayed up all night long. Um, um, what was it called? Mimeographing. <laughs> that was before Xerox, right? <laughs> And you had to like this, I think this may have even before the electrical uh, mimeograph. So you, you had to cut a stencil and some of you who are like uh, my age know what I'm talking about. So it was hard work. They stayed up all night long making those leaflets. And that's how the bus boycott got started. And I say this because that was really unglamorous work. It's work that we would not necessarily think about as being that significant. But that was what helped to create that movement. If they hadn't stayed up all night, if they hadn't worked that mimeograph machine, if they hadn't gotten people to go out and to distribute all of those leaflets like at 6 o'clock in the morning when people, particularly when... Um, uh, people who were domestic servants were getting on the bus, it never would have happened. I mean, I'm not saying that the struggle for civil rights wouldn't have happened, but it wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. And it's a very different story. It's a story about people just like you. It is not a story about heroic individualism. And it's a, story about the, it's a story about the erasure of women's contributions. And so I could talk about other movements as well. I could talk about uh, uh, the Chicano movement, Latino movements, American Indian movement, the Asian American movements. And I could talk about the, the, um, 
the contributions that women made to those movements uh, during uh, my time in the late 60s and the 70s that um, will be lost if we don't figure out how to rectify the tendency to tell history uh, in this way that, that privileges heroic individualism. And keep in mind, I'm going to be using individualism for the rest of my talk uh, because uh, uh, it's dangerous. It's really, really dangerous. And we have somebody in Washington who assumes that that is the meaning of freedom. But, like I said, I have to wait. I'm, I'm really anxious. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, but, okay, the second point I wanted to make is that... Um, the victories we do win are not always the victories we fought for. But we should celebrate them nonetheless. This is the year in which the Black Panther Party celebrates its 40th anniversary. As a matter of fact, in the Bay Area this weekend, there are a whole number of events. There's a huge reunion happening. The American Studies Association is meeting in Oakland, and uh, there is a, um, um, an event marking the 40th anniversary of the Black Panther Party, which was founded right there in Oakland, California. And if some of you know the history of the Black Panther Party, you know that it came about because a few people decided they wanted to do something about rampant police violence in the city of Oakland. Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and you know, many people are reluctant to talk about Huey Newton's contribution because of his trajectory and his um, putative involvement with drugs and the way he died. Uh, but I, I'll never forget what Erica Huggins said at Huey's funeral many years ago. She said, you know, everybody has their demons. And Huey had his demons and he could not deal with them. But that does not change the fact that he helped to spark a whole new phase in the movement against racism in this country. And so when he and Bobby Seale decided that they were going to patrol the streets of Oakland, California, and they were going to take guns, that time it was legal to take guns. I mean, you could carry guns as long as you didn't conceal them. So they weren't breaking the law. And they were going to take a law book, and they were going to... Um, monitor the Oakland police so that when the police stop somebody, and I know racial profiling is still a major, major issue, especially right here in this area. But when, when they saw the um, police stopping people, they would simply go and stand by and say, we want to inform you of your rights. 
And so they would have a law book in one hand, right? And then they would have their gun in the other hand. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I don't want to romanticize guns. I really don't. I don't want to romanticize violence or representations of violence. But what I can say is that that was an amazing feat of the imagination. That was an amazing feat of the imagination. Um, because it demonstrated that, that the kinds of strategies we had accepted as transformative, the civil rights strategies, um, worked only up to a certain point. And we didn't have to stop there. We could go further. I mean, this was, this was their way, and, and I, I have to stop talking about this in a minute because uh, uh, I'm running out of time. Uh, but this was also a way of manifesting solidarity with people who were struggling in Asia, in, in Vietnam, for example with people who were struggling for their liberation in Africa, with the people of South Africa, for example. I mean, this is how I interpret the symbolic, um, the symbolic meaning of the weapons. But then I would also have to talk about the you know, masculinist, militarist, uh, you know. I mean, and all of that's there, too. There were real problems with the way the Black Panther Party unfolded, but that's okay, because that was that period. And besides, we did not have the vocabulary, we didn't have the concepts which allowed us to think about the, the, the masculinism that was so much at the heart of uh, that work, and at, in, in many of the liberation movements as well. Uh, but at the same time, this was, this, this, this move by Huey and Bobby and others had a powerful impact on people all over the country and all over the world. I mean, I was studying in Frankfurt, Germany, and when I learned about what had happened in Oakland, California. I said, it's time to go home. And I'm sure many people responded in exactly the way I did. And then you had organizations developing in places like uh, Brazil, Black Panther Party of Brazil, Israel, a Black Panther Party in Israel, and many other countries all over the world. So this, this, was, this was quite amazing. Um, so they didn't stop police violence. They didn't stop racial profiling. Uh, but they achieved a lot of other changes. Um, and we could talk about the women's movement and how the women's movement formulating the overarching goal of eliminating sexism, male supremacy from our attitudes, from our institutions, 
And we know that racism and male dominance and homophobia are still very much of our surroundings. But the contributions of the women's movement, uh, and you know, when I say women's movement, I'm talking about a lot of different women's movements. I'm talking about the welfare rights movement. You know, I'm talking about the welfare rights movement that was uh, uh, that was comprised of poor women, um, in large part, black women, Latina women, poor white women, and who raised radical demands back then. You know, who called for an end. End to the welfare system long before President Clinton thought about getting rid of the wel- welfare system. Clinton bears his blame as well. So, right. Uh, what they called for was a guaranteed annual income for every single person in this country. A guaranteed, a- either jobs, jobs, right? And if the jobs aren't available, a guaranteed annual income with no strings attached. Without all of those strings that were attached to ideological as well as material strings that were attached to uh, welfare payments. No, I would really like to uh, have some conversation with you, so I, I think I better really move on. I'm just looking at my notes, and I see I wanted to say something about, um, in talking about historical change, I wanted to say something about the thwarted efforts of um, socialism in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's like we've completely forgotten that there were these countries that called themselves communists. The word only comes up when North Korea uh, decides that it wants to uh, uh, challenge the U.S., right? And then it's a communist country, right? Or when um, Fidel Castro uh, or the, 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 the people of Cuba stand up to George Bush and it's like communist Cuba, But what we don't hold in our historical memory is that despite whatever problems may have existed in those countries, despite the um, fact that they failed to produce social democracy, they failed to produce political democracy, uh, that they, they made amazing changes with respect to people's lives. I mean, I had a friend years ago uh, who, a young white woman uh, from this country who was on welfare, uh, and she she made a trip to the Soviet Union. Um, And she she actually wanted to get um, a university education, but couldn't because she was on welfare and had a child and all of that. So, I mean, this is an individual solution, of course. So she actually decided to uh, move to um, Moscow 
And she ended up at that time, I'll never forget, she was like just so amazed. She said, you know, my rent is practically nothing. Uh, I have free child care. I have, I can get a free college education. And when she finished her undergraduate uh, education, she decided to go on and get her PhD. And, and then she, she, she's still there. <laughs> she stayed. <laughs> but, you know, free health care. Health, the health care system is in such a crisis in this country. And free education. And the idea that people had was that not only should education be free, but students should actually be supported, financially supported, while they're acquiring the knowledge which they will later give back to society. So why can't we retain that in our historical memory? Victories are never permanently engraved in the social landscape. What they may mean at one point in history may be entirely different, even contrary to what they might mean at another point uh, in history. And of course, here in California, uh, we know that the whole notion of civil rights, especially for people of color and women, has been redefined in a way that contradicts its original intent. And I know some of you are interested in the underrepresentation of, of students of color. I think it's important to remember that affirmative action was assumed to be a collective strategy. Um, it was designed to change the structures of communities that were subject to discrimination. It was not designed to be an individual solution. And so what we have now is this very individualized, I'm talking about individualism again, take note of that, this, this very individualized interpretation that pits individual white men who are members of a class that has been a bearer of historical privilege against groups and classes that have suffered historical discrimination. And we don't see that contradiction. We don't see that contradiction. But what I should say is that this does not mean that the struggle for affirmative action was a mistake, since it is now so often redefined as reverse discrimination. It means that social meanings are socially constructed and that we cannot leave it up to the state to create those meanings. And I mean the state in the broadest possible sense, right? I mean, I'm not only talking about government, but I am talking about government in Washington. And you know, I can't 
get started talking about uh, Schwarzenegger. I mean, you know, I do a lot of traveling, and, and you know, I travel in, in, in Europe and Latin America and other places, and, and, and people said, George Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger in California? They said, that's even worse than Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Because, of course, uh, uh, Barbara mentioned that I was on the, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't uh, uh, talk about the fact that I was on the uh, FBI's 10 was one and less that often. <laughs> but uh, uh, Richard Nixon was president and Ronald Reagan was governor of California at that time, yeah. And Richard Nixon, uh, you know, publicly said on several occasions that I was a terrorist, so you can imagine how I think about this label terrorist today, right? Um, but let me get back to my notes. So, so what I was saying is that, 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 that social meanings are socially constructed and we cannot leave it up to the state to produce those meanings. And because we are always always, always encouraged to conceptualize change only as it affects individuals. There is this dangerous individualism to which I referred earlier, not unrelated to the individual of, individualism of capitalism, possessive individualism, possessive individualism. And this dangerous individualism is bound to transform the collective victories that we win. And so if we imagine these victories as community victories and they are transformed into individual victories, then we seek out heroic examples. We seek out individuals like Condoleezza Rice who narrates her own history from the segregation and discrimination of the pre-civil rights era or the civil rights era in the South. She's also from Birmingham, Alabama, by the way, but that's not something I want to boast about. Uh, <laughs> and what happens is that we forget about the structural changes that were actually intended by those struggles. A Condoleezza Rice can say, well, look, look where I am. Look what I accomplished. I was a little black girl in Birmingham, Alabama, and da 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 da, and now I'm <laughs> running around the world making war. But, you know, I. I'm often asked by young people, don't you feel that you and your comrades, what you and your comrades did in the 60s and 70s has sort of come to naught? Um, was it in vain? And I say no, absolutely 
not, absolutely not. Even if the structural change that we wanted did not occur, even if relief was not brought to subjugated communities in the way we wanted, what we did manage to do was to change the terrain of struggle. We reconfigured the landscape on which we now try to increase the measure of freedom all communities enjoy. And I am um, therefore quite concerned about questions of vocabulary. I was talking about the need to think about the conceptual tools that we use. and earlier I talked about the need to adopt critical habits, habits that require a kind of constant criticism, not only of those things that we want to change, but of the way we want to change them and of the tools we use to conceptualize that change. So I want to just choose one example, contemporary example, um, and it's that word diversity. You know, I, it, it upsets me. It really upsets me. Uh, Not that uh, I don't believe that we should have diversity, but uh, the word diversity has colonized so much of what we were once able to talk with much greater specificity. All we have to do now is evoke diversity. And what does diversity mean? It means... I guess this would be a diverse audience uh, because there are different kinds of people, at least, well, I don't know whether there are really different kinds of people. Uh, there's a kind of visual effect, <laughs> you know? And diversity is precisely about that visual effect. It does not necessarily tell us, and I'm not an opponent of diversity. I'm an advocate of strong conceptions of diversity. And the way I summarize it is that you can have difference that truly makes a difference, and that's the kind of diversity I want, difference that is going to make a difference. But you can also have difference that doesn't make a difference. Difference that allows the machine to keep functioning in the same old way. And as a matter of fact, sometimes even more efficiently and effectively. I mean, George Bush is so proud of the fact that his secretary of state is a black woman. And I would tell some stories about that, but... If we embrace weak notions of diversity, it is a concept that provides, that promotes, it seems to me, a hidden individualization of problems and solutions that ought to be collective. It is a concept that can, unless we redefine it in its strongest version, that can leave structures of inequality and injustice intact. And what I think is really immensely important for our purposes this afternoon, diversity is a concept that provincializes our relationship to the world. Um, 
And we live during an era that is called globalization or something like that, uh, right? There's supposed to be this instantaneous global transmission of knowledge. The products we purchase for our daily use are produced and distributed by and large on the global market. We wear the sweat of global workers, especially young girls and women. We wear their sweat on our bodies. We consume a disproportionate amount of the world's energy. And therefore, we live as if the rest of the world were simply there for the purpose of serving and confirming what is represented as our way of life. And I said before that I was trying to avoid mention of of George Bush, uh, uh, the, the, the man who throughout the world stands for the worst, most xenophobic, most bellicose, most racist, most exploitive elements of this country. And I, you know, I'm, I'm personally embarrassed by having to be represented on a global arena by a figure such as George Bush. But, but embarrassment is perhaps, you know, Embarrassment is perhaps too weak of a term, right? Yeah. You know, maybe I should talk about uh, uh, my absolute revulsion that wars are being conducted in our names and that torture is being justified in our names and that democracy has become a watchword for the most abominable violations of human rights. And, you know, as someone who's been around for a long time, uh, and you're going to be really surprised at how quickly you begin to get old. (laughs) So prepare yourself for it. I mean, you can't imagine it now, but then those of us who are old can't really imagine being old either, so I always put it that way, because we always think of ourselves, uh, you know, as... uh, And, I mean, I think that's important. We should. Uh, So I I was going to say, never in my 62 years, uh, could I have imagined that the hegemony of ultra-right-wing conservatives would produce the kind of situation we find ourselves in today. Not only war and torture, but a political discourse that aspires to persuade us that democracy can become this watchword for terror, for torture, and for the wholesale denial of individual and collective rights. One might go so far as to say that the strategies of the Bush administration involve invoking the fight to save democracy as a justification for the rapid erosion of democratic rights. And so there is torture that is not recognized as torture. There are secret prisons that are not revealed, and when they are revealed, they are justified. There's extraordinary rendition that amounts to routine torture. There's this 
this, this prospect of fencing off the Mexican border to p- prevent people from entering this country whose lives have been destroyed by the impact of global capitalism. And, of course, of course, we need to tell uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger that the prison situation is horrendous. Uh, and California... California is at the very bottom of uh, of the list. 2.2 million people are behind bars, which means that the United States incarcerates proportionately more people than any other country in the world. And the prison has also become the paradigm for new modes of democracy or capitalism. You know, it, it occurred to me that if you listen to Bush say democracy, just say, just replace that with capitalism. I mean, it makes a lot more sense. The strategies make a lot more sense because it's not really about democracy. This is a, this is a depressing situation. It's, it's really depressing. But it doesn't have to be depressing. And it's only depressing if you assume that the way things are today is the way they will be tomorrow. Only if you assume that the way things are today is the way they will be tomorrow. And I'll go back to what my mother told me. This is not the way they are supposed to be, and they do not have to remain this way. And I see that, um, that Barbara has handed me the, the first questions. Uh, so, and I have uh, four more pages of notes, <laughs> which are probably... Cha- Let me see if there's anything really important here. Oh, yeah, there, everything is really important. Uh, uh, just a summary. I, I'll, I'll, I'll read some of my uh, bullet points. Uh, feminism need not be only about women nor about gender. We can think about feminism as a methodology that can better enable us to conceptualize and fight for progressive change. And that, that is because the kind of feminism that I'm talking about calls upon us to seek out connections, to make connections that are not, that ought to be obvious, but aren't because of the ways in which our perceptions of the world are so deeply ideologically influenced. Uh, so I wanted to ask, what is the relationship between the movement against sexual violence, which we managed, we usually think about as, as individualized, sexual violence against women even, so what is the connection between state violence, state sexual violence against women? Um, Think about that. We assume that it's only the individual that can be the perpetrator of such violence and we excuse the state even though we see what happens in Abu Ghraib, even though we see what happens in Guantanamo, even though we see how sexual coercion, which has been a part of the daily routines of women in prison for decades and decades, And I'm talking, you know, I always like to point out that we take the strip search and the cavity search for granted as something that 
women deserve just because they happen to be in in a place that's called a prison that they get to be sexually assaulted and 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 you know i can point out that i experienced that myself when i was in jail and it does not feel any different from sexual assault by an individual so we need to make those connections and we need to incorporate this into our um um Take back the night marches, for example, those connections between state violence and, and, and what we might call privatized individual violence. And then, and then I was going to, I'll just tell you what I was, I was going to talk about Mumia Abu-Jamal, so maybe someone can ask me a question. I was going to talk about a number of cases, taking the um, opportunity since I do have, somebody told me it was, uh, what did you say? It's my stage, so <laughs> so I was going to take the opportunity, since it's temporarily my stage, to talk about uh, s- some of the work that I'm so passionately um, involved in and committed to. I, I was going to mention uh, uh, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. I was going to mention the case of Leonard Peltier. I was going to mention the case of the Cuban Five in Florida. And then I was going to mention the campaign that we call Hands Off Asata, Asata Shakur, uh, who is living in exile in Cuba after having escaped from prison in the 70s. Um, Not very many people escaped from prison. You know, Asata should be applauded. She, She got away. She got away. And she's written a wonderful autobiography, which if you haven't read, you should. It's called simply Asata. But she's celebrating her 60th birthday in, the, in July of next year. So I'm just going to ask you to look out. There'll be events um, all, over the California, all over California, hopefully here in the Davis-Sacramento area, um, because this is a struggle against Homeland Security. Homeland Security has put a million-dollar bounty on her head, which basically invites anybody to go to Cuba, kidnap her, and bring her back uh, to the U.S. And we can bring her back, but, but first we have to free her. And so I want to close by uh, uh, saying that... Um, with a very, very simple message, a very simple plea. Please get involved. Please try to make a difference. Please try to turn this country around. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.